I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. In this episode, we're going to delve deep into Clutter with Jennifer Howard, author of a recent book entitled Clutter, An Untidy History. This book is for you if you have a closet that will no longer close because it's so crammed with clothes, or a garage piled with boxes you keep meaning to sort. I'm looking in the mirror here. Or a storage unit that you pay for every month without having a clear exit strategy. I've done that one too. Maybe it's especially for you if you have an older relative with a house piled high with belongings that you know they will never get rid of, and you have a growing sense of dread that one day you're going to have to roll up your sleeves. For many, that's almost become an expectation, like seeing children off to college, a rite of passage, a life stage, the house clearance. Jennifer went through that, when her mother was no longer able to live on her own. You'll hear her talk about that in a moment. But as well as feeling overwhelmed by the experience, she began wondering, how come so many people undergo this? How come our houses are so full of stuff that stuff itself becomes a problem? In 2013, hoarding disorder was recognised as a distinct mental condition in the Diagnostic Bible for Mental Health Professionals the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. In extreme form, that disorder may affect as many as 6% of Americans. Even without reaching that stage, for many of us, our possessions are a problem as much as a pleasure. The Philadelphia Fire Department came up with a label for the severe clutter they kept encountering in homes when they attended emergencies, heavy contents. Heavy contents impede emergency services access, prevent escape. They burn, they become waterlogged and collapse through ceilings. Heavy contents weigh us down as much psychologically as physically. Whatever you think of Marie Kondo's approach to culling your book collection, she clearly tapped into something. Jennifer Howard is a former contributing editor and columnist for the Washington Post and a former senior reporter for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Her book is not a manual for decluttering your home, so much as an invitation to think about our vexed relationship with our things and how it came about. 
perhaps seeing it in a different context is a way to begin to tackle it. Perhaps I'll start in the garage this weekend. When we spoke last autumn, I began by asking Jennifer to tell me about her mother's house. I was I was shocked and staggered by how much stuff somebody could accumulate in a relatively small house. You know, it was a freestanding single-family house, but not a large one, not one of the McMansions that you see now. It had an attic, a garage, a basement, all of them stuffed, every square inch stuffed, you know, to the, to the rafters, literally. Uh, every closet was overflowing. Every room had stacks of random objects. And she'd never, mom, my mother had never been a minimalist, but she had never been... I mean, I didn't grow up in squalor. I grew up in a, you know, a sort of normal-ish, a fair bit of stuff that kind of some of it never really got cleaned up. But it wasn't it wasn't a health hazard. Um, it wasn't the kind of place I'd be embarrassed to bring friends over to. But over those intervening decades after I left the house, um, the balance got more and more out of whack. And it just became too hard for her to keep up with normal daily tasks. So things started to pile up bills, magazines, newspapers, anything that was potentially useful, you know, like soy sauce packets, um, paper clips, pennies. She would finish a jar of jam and just wash the jar out and keep it. So the dining room table just had, you know, had uh, stacks and stacks of jars, all in theory, potentially useful things. But for one person living in a house, the balance was off and she couldn't really just sort of bear to let things go. Deferred decisions is a, is a phrase that one hears when it comes to clutter. People just can't quite bear to sit down and go through whatever it is or make a decision about an object. Sometimes they just can't, physically or mentally, and that, that those decisions pile up as the things pile up. What was really saddest to me was that it became it did become a squalid situation where she couldn't really cook for herself anymore or do dishes. So the dishes would, in a week's worth of dishes would pile up. Trash wouldn't be taken out. Takeout containers would just pile up, you know, the fridge was just full of takeout containers, but then other rooms too. So it really had become a very sad and, and dangerous situation for her. And uh, like many people who suffer from hoarding disorder or have a, a real trouble with extreme clutter. She did not want help. So it was some, one of those things that she, she couldn't deal with it herself, but because of the shame attached to struggles with material goods, um, you know, that, that we're supposed to keep, keep our material lives in check. And if we can't, we're bad people. She wouldn't really let anybody come in to help. Yeah. So that was the trigger. And it was interesting to me that, uh, so the, the year Marie, Marie Kondo's, um, first book came out, the, international bestseller, you know, life-changing magic of tidying up came out in this country in 2014. And it was about a year later that my mother had her crisis. So there was was already this conversation about clutter percolating in the larger culture when I was brought up very suddenly and painfully against uh, extreme clutter in my own family. And I guess you knew from some way back that this was going to fall to you, that this task was, was waiting for you at some point in the future. Unfortunately, I, I feared it would. I'm an only child, and my um, my parents divorced when I was quite small, so my father was not not in the picture in um, in a way that I mean, these were not his things that needed attending to. My late stepfather died in 2012, and so my mother was on her own with all of her things. I think I always uh, hoped that she would sort of rally and start to make some decisions, but it became very clear that that was not going to happen. You know, once I started looking at her physical and mental condition and the state of the house, like those two things, were never going to to um, work together. And so you you had both a massive physical, practical challenge, just the sheer amount of stuff to be yeah. sorted yeah. and dealt with, but you also had the personal, emotional, psychological 
fact that this was your mother's life and in some ways you, your own life and a, the end of a an era that you were you were dealing with so you you were sort of a typical of many people of our generation in having to, to right. deal with both right. of, of those things on a big scale. Yes, I mean, the, the practical and logistical challenges alone were were considerable, uh, especially in what happened when I was in the middle of my family and professional life. I had a lot of other obligations I had to be attending to. And so, But the sheer amount of time it takes to figure out what to do with all these things and to find out what resources there might be to, to help, because it's not, it's not something, it's not, you don't, you know, in college, they don't give you a course on what to do when you, you have to clean out, you know, 50 years worth of stuff from a relative's house. Then the, the shock of my mother's very sudden, I mean, she'd been declining for a long time, but then there was this real crisis. So suddenly it's like a death, even though she wasn't dead. And then trying to make sense out of all the things she had left, left to me to deal with. There were a lot of things that, that, um, I didn't know where they came from. I didn't know if they were valuable in an emotional or familial sense. Photographs of people who are long dead and all the people who knew who they were are either dead or not able to identify them anymore. So it was really just like wandering in this, this you know, dark forest of stuff, uh, trying to find some way through and wondering what, you know, what was lurking there, not really knowing if there were fairies or ogres or something else. A word that keeps coming up in your book is overwhelmed. You know, people mm. describing that sense of yes. being overwhelmed by the possessions. Was that the sense that you had as you tackled this process? Very palpably. I mean, it really was a um, almost a physical sense of being stifled or, or drowned in, in something, almost a breathless quality. One goes into the situation not being prepared emotionally or, or really with a lot of, at least in my case, practical skills for who to call. And just the sense of, I have to do something with it. What do I do with it? Well, a couple of people said to me, well, just get a dumpster, you know, and, and just unload everything into the house. Just get rid of it all or out of the house. And I thought, I just can't do that. I have to um, try to turn myself into more of an archaeologist and look at it more as a process of excavating uh, and looking for things that might tell me something about my mother or my family or that my, my children might want someday. And then to, to do that in as deliberate a way as I can so that... I won't have the guilt of, of having sort of destroyed my mother's material life, even if I end up having to get rid of most of it. At least I will have tried to approach it deliberately and thoughtfully. And that was actually, in, it was very hard, but it was uh, comforting in some way because at least it brought some sort of sense of order to the process that other, otherwise was just a chaotic you know, series of confusions. And, and at some stage you did enlist professional help. I with did. The task. Um, what, what was the nature of that help and, and how did it help? <laughs> It, uh, I enlisted a couple of different kinds of help. The first um, order of business, one of the first orders of business was to try to find any important papers like the title to the house, a will if she had one, financial records, because that too um, had really fallen into disarray. So I, I brought in a professional organizer who was very, her greatest strength in some ways was that she was very calm and she would just sit in the house with me and go through box after box after box. And she kind of knew, uh, she's a lawyer as well, so she knew what to look for, how far back records should be kept. And she was really terrific of just helping me look at it as, as this, you know, very practical sort of tasks. And then uh, a junk hauler who worked, worked with me and was in his own way kind of a therapist. I mean, really a lovely guy who has been through all sorts of clean-outs with people, seen everything. He was not shocked by what he saw in my mother's house. And he was so kind and so calm. It really helped me say goodbye to things and 
is sort of let them go and send them on their way. One thing I found particularly valuable valuable about his approach was that he um, he always tried to find uses for things if he could. He had a number of donation shops. He would take useful items to. He would recycle things at the at the landfill. So actually, dumping things in a landfill was the last resort for him. And I found that very soothing and you know comforting. He had a big, big pink uh, dump truck, and he and two other guys would come up with the big pink truck and load it all up like it was this. Um, I don't know, almost like a game of, uh, or like a Rubik's Cube where you have to align everything and maximize the space. And that was kind of fun to watch too because just being interested in the process was a help yeah. to me to get through it. And were you, Jen, at the same time sort of asking questions in your head as you were sorting and sifting and digging? Were you thinking, how did I get myself into this situation? How did my mother mm-hmm. get herself mm-hmm. into this situation? Mm-hmm. And, and how come this is a situation that is, you know, increasingly common? Very much so. Um, I mean, I felt so, at, at the beginning, I felt so alone with the process or in this situation. And it seemed to me uniquely awful. But as I started talking to people at the office, talking to friends, I mean, anybody who is past college age, almost everybody has somebody in their family or or a family friend who has either, you know, had to go through one of these cleanouts or is probably going to have to. And some, somebody's got that uncle or that grandmother who just has way too much stuff. And the stories I started hearing made me feel like this is not unique to, to me and my family. I, mean, I just remember standing in the kitchen at my my job at the, it's a job I don't have anymore, but um, standing in telling a coworker about my mother's house and every person who came in had a similar story. And suddenly there are five of us standing there talking about our this problem. And I thought, how is this happening? This is not just a, an aberration. There's something culturally interesting going on. And since I'm trained as a journalist, you know, I start asking questions and start asking myself who I could talk to to find out more. And that's what led me down some of the research trails that resulted in the book. Yes. So you very much wanted to kind of look beyond individual circumstance, individual psychology, even individual pathology in, you know, in the mm-hmm. case of people who've got a, a hoarding disorder right. and ask big questions about, you know, how come we exist in a culture where this is a very frequent occurrence and where, where yeah. do you think it's yeah. useful to go back to? Where do you sort of see the seeds of the problem? Right. Um, well, I, I really wanted someone to blame, so I decided to blame the Victorians. <laughs> yeah. No, and uh, no, no, they're to blame for a lot of things. <laughs> they are. <laughs> and of course, you know, material culture has has an incredibly complicated set of histories all over the world. I mean, as long as there've been human civilizations, there've been material cultures to work with. But what I kept finding as I was doing research on try, trying to trace. Um, stories of accumulations and and excessive amounts of stuff, it kept coming back to the Victorians, um, where you had you know, this confluence of factors, um, particularly during the reign of Victoria, you know, the Industrial Revolution, uh, late 18th century, early 19th century. Victoria comes to the throne in 1837, kind of at the end of that, that industrial explosion. And then 1851, you have the Great Exposition in London with the Crystal Palace, this temple of st- literal temple of stuff and to stuff. And you have urban centers, you know, uh, manufacturing centers, financial centers really coming into their own. You have these these social chroniclers um, in the around the time that that my mother post 2010 era. I've been rereading some Victorian novels like Bleak House and Our Mutual Friend, and was really taken by these these um, exuberant 
grotesque catalogs of things that Dickens, he loves stuff, you know, he loves stuff in all its manifestations um, and these sort of distorted grotesqueries of stuff. And I, uh, that led me to Henry Mayhew, too, who was chronicling the street sellers of Victorian London and this sort of this churn of people and things. And I really felt like there I could see a lot of the groundwork being laid for the kind of obsession with an interest in, in domesticity um, and consumption that my family inherited. Um, a lot of those ideas traveled across the Atlantic. And of course, you have uh, that idea of bourgeois domesticity, the domestic angel, you know, the angel of the house, the, the idea that middle-class families were supposed to aspire to a certain kind of comfort and well-appointed status. It resonated so much with me that, that I could see so many of the, the sort of hunger for things, the availability of things, and this challenge of what to do with all the things kind of coming together in that in that period. And then that just accelerates, doesn't it? You write about the coming of catalogue shopping and the mm. the impact of the railroads and so on. And then your parents and my parents' generation who were born around or around the time of the Second World War, coming of age in that post-war world where yes. it's almost like consumption is a is sort of a mandate. You know, it's, it's what a it's what a good right. a good citizen does. You know, the economy is going forward and we're building a new and better world after the disaster mm-hmm. of the war. Mm-hmm. And consumption is just, you know, woven into the very fabric of that. It was patriotic. It was pushed. Um, it was part of the economic engine, you know, the post-war engine, as you say. My mother was born in 1938 into pretty modest circumstances. So I think she, she very keenly felt the lack of things, you know, the, uh, when she was a child. And then as she came of age as a consumer in the 1950s, you really see that um, the rise of department stores and leading to shopping malls eventually, um, this push to have bigger houses and fill them with more things. Catalogs, which had been a lifeline for so many people in mid, late 19th century, really, uh, early 20th century, be- becoming more of a luxury and and um, recreational sort of pastime, but still very much pushed and promoted. The rise of advertising, like selling these messages. I could see my mother being sort of wrapped and, and, and warped by some of these pressures and messages. So it helped me understand that it was not just a personal failing on her part or deferred personal decisions, but a, a long, long history pushing her to acquire things, but not really teaching her how to deal with them. Yes. And, you know, the shopping mall and then latterly online shopping, it it sort of almost becomes a sort of way of life, doesn't it? Or it becomes a sort of ineluctable part of of life. I mean, today I had something from eBay, you know, it was a a mailing from eBay and it said, Mm -hmm, get mm -hmm. that Friday feeling. And, you know, know, it's it's a really banal example, but what it's trying to do is to sort of say, implicitly you've reached the end of your working week get the friday feeling and the friday feeling entails buying yourself something you're going online shopping browsing and buying yourself something and i thought that's just one little tiny example of just how you know sort of saturated this whole notion of looking for things finding things acquiring things paying for things having things delivered has become in the last last few decades the messages are everywhere i mean of course now Unless you're extremely good with your ad blockers um, online, you know, I we recently bought a fire pit. I mean, everybody's buying patio furniture and fire pits, right? So we bought a fire pit. But now every time I go on Instagram or any other platform, I get another ad for the fire pit I just bought. You know, it's like it's this, um, there are little messages popping up all over the place telling me that I should be proud for buying the fire pit and that I should probably buy another one. I don't know. Yes. So we are we are saturated with <laughs> with stuff and and the messages that we need to keep buying it. Treat ourselves. Yes. And it seems to be accelerating. I mean, you mentioned the example of Lego in your book. 
and I had Lego when I was a child in the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. But I had, a, I, I guess, a sort of fairly standard set of construction bricks from which you could make anything you liked, but it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't sort of bespoke Star Wars. And now we, we've yeah, got all right. sorts of, you know, collectible and special edition and, you know, bespoke sort of sets. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to blame children, but I'm saying it no, really, no, no, it really, no. it really yeah. starts, it really starts young. And I guess I was, you know, sort of thinking about, you know, well, how, how do you begin to rein this in? And it seems very unfair to um, to say you start with children, clearly. But once those habits are sort of ingrained of seeing things, of wanting things, of getting things, mm-hmm. it must make it harder mm-hmm. to um, to sort of unlearn them. I, I think it is very much. And uh, we went through a Lego phase in our house. And they're, I mean, they're, they're wonderfully creative, some of these sets. You know, I remember when my son got the Millennium Falcon set as a birthday gift, and the hours he spent putting it together, he they, he was thrilled and absorbed by it. <clears throat> but it's, it has sat ever since on the top of a bookshelf, you know, in his in his playroom. Um, and you don't want to kill that that interest and that fun. But at the same time, it's really not sustainable for most families to to keep buying Lego sets because they're not cheap. And um, and then they have to go somewhere. You know, it's plastic. It's gonna gotta go. Does somebody want to reass- take it all apart and reassemble? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it, it, we definitely can't blame children because they're they're obviously following the cues of the people around them. Uh, it does disturb me when I see how much they're trained to be um, to be consumers. I, I know there's a new grocery store near me, and of course you've got the big shopping carts, and then the kid sized shopping carts that have a little flag that say "customer in training." And like, there you go. You know, that's um, not not like future cook in training or, you know, the customers is the is the tag that is being being placed there and emphasized. And of course, we, we're constantly being sold upgrades and we're used to devices having built in obsolescence. The odds are kind of stacked against us. If we want to live a minimalist lifestyle, you, you mentioned people who really try to, to live a zero waste lifestyle. And you make the point that it takes, it takes effort and it takes time, really, to, to design a life which is so against the current because it's so easy yeah. to have yeah. a, a, a sort of high consumerist lifestyle. It is. And, and really, you know, our systems are really not set up to help us avoid that. Um, I, I don't know how it is in the UK, but here, uh, clerks in store, well, not that anyone is going to stores anymore these days, but people in, who are you know, selling you things in stores, um, if you if you say that you don't need a bag, it really surprises them still. Like, you don't, you don't need a bag? Are you sure? You know, or, or let me wrap that for you or let me, and it can seem like lovely customer service, but then you bring home the little bag from wherever it is and what do you do with it? It takes energy to resist all these things that we're taught we should do to not get the takeout packets of soy sauce because you have a bottle at home you can use, not get the chopsticks and everything is sort of packaged for convenience. It's not a good thing that, that, um, to live a more environmentally friendly and, an emotionally friendly lifestyle takes resources and work, which I think most many people just can't afford. To live a, um, a responsible life shouldn't be the privilege of the rich, right? It should yeah. be something that, that society should be encouraging for all kinds of reasons. And to resist the multi-buy, the multi-pack, you know, you, you make that point too. I mean, it seems to be economic insanity to spend more per unit. But in fact, if you only need, you know, if you don't need 60 pens in a pack, if you only need 
one or two pens, then then it makes more sense. But it's hard it's hard to resist that. And of course, the you know the retailers know that. And I guess the same is found in in food retailing. And that's why you know people probably consume more calories than they need because <laughs> there's there's a lot of pressure. Well, it's not the only reason. I know it's complicated, but yes, you know people find it very easy to acquire a lot of calories because there are sort of economic drivers pushing them in that direction. Very much so. And uh, uh, you, you all may have it better there, but America is definitely the land of the, you know, supersize it, um, whether it's a car, a Happy Meal, a you know, box of cereal, whatever it is, bigger is, is better. And that's the message we tend to get. But um, it does seem crazy to me. And I'm sure an, an economist would probably have a more complicated explanation. But going back to Amazon, now that we're getting so much from Amazon, you buy, you know, three bottles of body lotion and it costs less than buying one. And how is that possible? And why do I... I don't need three bottles of body lotion. You know, it's it's a. It, it seems like many of the, the the whole system is kind of skewy, skewed in some interesting and unfortunate ways. So, did you reach any conclusions about how you live your own life as a result of <laughs> of, of both having this sort of immersion in the world of you know decluttering, but also thinking about the sort of broader social historical patterns? So, has it actually made you? change in in small or large ways how you handle stuff yourself it's a it's a work in progress probably a lifelong work i have promised my children that they will not inherit the kind of situation that i that felt to me and i think that's I i think i can keep that promise but it is it has made me try to be a little more mindful about what comes into the house the uses it has in the house and when it might be time to let it go. Nobody should spend all their time decluttering. You know, we have we all have better things to do with our I hope we have better things to do with our time than, you know, wrangling our stuff. Because that again gives the stuff too much power. On the other hand, um, you do want things in your life that are going to be interesting, nurturing in whatever way, that aren't just going to sit there, take up space, take up resources, and then get dumped somewhere. So I'm trying to think more about how every, how the, the things in our in my immediate life um, have uh, belong to a much larger set of cycles and processes that have both human and environmental costs and some benefits. Um, and to see that that's you know, none of us exist in isolation. Our things don't exist in isolation. Just to be more mindful of, of being afloat in this material sea and the currents within that sea. And you spent some time talking to professional organisers as well as using the services, one of them. Did you, I did. Did you have a broadly positive view of, of what they do and what they can, they can do to help people who get into a, a state of clutterment? Very, very much. I mean, I think, I think when I went into it, I didn't give them enough credit as far as what they bring to what turns out to be a very um, sensitive set of, t- of topics. Once I understood a little more about the psychology around objects and people's different um, often dysfunctional relationships to the to their objects. I was really impressed by how organizers look at the people first, not the things. They, they're not just coming in to corral your stuff. They're actually coming in to help you learn to either confront or work through what you need to work through and to make that process easier. Um, it's a very humane process done well. And I think they understand that there's so much history and emotion wrapped up in objects. And that's what's really keeping people back from living a more harmonious life. And it's not easy work. I mean, I really, um, the organizers I interviewed, they really felt very keenly the emotional situations of their clients and were trying very hard to like be a steady force, you know, be the sort of 
be a comfort and a help as well as someone who could say, here's a good system for keeping your files in order. We're going to color code. We're going to do whatever, whatever the particular approach is. And it reminded me very much of, it's, it's just such an interesting gendered history to our, the way we take care of things too. And when I, you know, going back to the Victorians and Isabella Beaton's book of household management, you know, how you cook a good meal and all that. But, you know, she was a, a working journalist and she wrote this bestseller. It's kind of a, I mean, it was a condo style bestseller. It was huge. And I just uh, came across, I zoomed into a book club and one of the women in the book club was telling me that her grandmother had a copy of Mrs. Beaton's book. I mean, all these years later, you know, it's, it was a huge hit, but there was a woman, you know, in an era where women were expected to be domestic goddesses and she made money on it. She, you know, she, she set out to write a book and that it was going to, you know, to take charge of that. And what professional organizers are in some ways, they're carrying on that tradition of taking this traditional female skill set of here, it's your job to keep things orderly and nice. Um, but they're, they've turned it into a business, you know, and it has, it can be a very flexible and I think very satisfying business, uh, depending on how you do it. Heaven forbid that you ever have to leave your house in a hurry, but let's presume yes. that your family and yes. your pets are safe and you, you can only save one object. What would be the object that you would save? Oh, gosh. I'm just looking around my living room here. Could I let it all go? Maybe. Boy, I really don't know what the answer I should I should know the answer to that, shouldn't I? There should be one special thing. I mean, I do... I do. I mentioned it in the book. I do have this little bottle of stones I brought back from Crete, a trip with my father. And I really, I do really genuinely, I mean, this really, this is one of those memory keeper objects. I don't know if I would think to grab it first, uh, if I had to flee the house, but it would be one of the top things. Probably photographs, although my photographs are in disarray and I should probably, <laughs> and somewhere in the cloud. I don't know. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that's not a very satisfying answer, but the, the thing I take away from that is that maybe the stuff just isn't that important. You know, it, it, it's nice to have, and I, I treasure some of it, but I could probably, you know, carry on without it if I had to. I was talking to Jennifer Howard about her book, Clutter, An Untidy History. It's currently available in hardback and as an ebook, and is published by Belt Publishing, an independent non-fiction house based in Cleveland, Ohio. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 70 more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, Google and Spotify, among others, and catch up on any interviews you've missed. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.